Welcome to The Future Strategist, and today my guest is Robin Hansen, and we're going to talk about aliens and UFOs. Uh, hello, Robin. Hello, James. So uh, you have written about a concept you call grabby aliens. What do you mean by grabby aliens? Well, uh, it's a more specific version of what I mean by loud aliens. So I just say aliens can be classified into two general groups, quiet ones that are out there but not very big and doing very much that are hard to see and therefore we have to sort of reason very indirectly about them and, and maybe glean hints from them from other things. And then in contrast, there would be loud aliens. These would be really big and noisy and obvious. <laughs> and we can actually say something interesting about the loud aliens. And in fact, we can say more about them than the quiet ones. And so the grabby aliens is our particular model we put together to uh, describe what the loud aliens are doing and to be able to actually say we actually have some confidence in telling you that they are out there and roughly what they're doing. But we don't see any grabby aliens, right? So doesn't that reduce our confidence that they're out there? Okay, what, what we see is that we are early in the history of the universe. So this is the key data point. So, you know, it's now roughly 14 billion years since the Big Bang. That, that sounds like a long time. But the you know, median star will last five trillion years. So you know, there's a long history ahead of us of star lives. And we have a simple standard model of the origin of advanced life like us that says we would have to go through a sequence of hard steps. And that model predicts that we should be much more likely to appear near the end of a stellar lifetime than near the beginning. And in fact, there's a power law dependence there that depends on the number of hard steps. The power goes as the number of hard steps. So that says not only should we appear somewhere in this, you know, five trillion year period, but we should appear toward the end of it. So and that's that means like we're really early. So basically, you're saying if there's a really difficult task and you have a certain amount of time, you'd expect you're more likely to finish that task towards the end of the available time than the beginning. Right, especially if on each place you're just likely not to finish the task. So the idea is planets show up and they start out in some proto-bio state and they're trying, in essence, to go through a series of steps and they do what we call try-try steps. They, they just, you know, atoms bounce around, molecules bounce around, and every once in a while the right combination shows up and then that enables the next thing to happen. And, uh, you know, there are maybe six such steps between no life at all and where we are in our evolution on Earth. And each of these steps is really hard. And in fact, on any one planet, it's very unlikely even to get past the first step, much less get past all six steps. And so that means out of all these planets, only a tiny, tiny fraction ever reached the end of this, uh, you know, period uh, and, and finish all the steps before time runs out on that planet. And that's why we, we should appear very late in this period. And of course, it would only be a small, rare fraction of planets that finally achieve this. But, you know, so rare we can understand. It's, it's hard, but people don't get that it, we should appear much, much later than we are right now. And our explanation for why we're so early is that there's a deadline. Enough of these planets out there will achieve advanced life like us. That advanced life will then expand into the universe. And as they all expand, they will then take over and fill up the universe, after which it'll all be full, after which it's too late for a planet to go through these last steps and reach advanced life. Because 
the advanced aliens have already taken that planet and done other things with it. Okay. So the only hope for civilizations at our level are, are to exist relatively early in the universe because they're... they're resources for us to develop won't be there if you go out another 100 billion years or so. Even another billion years. So the, the remarkable thing here is that we have a simple three-parameter model describing these gravity aliens, and we can fit each of the parameters to data we have about them. And so we can actually give you a full statistical model of their distribution in space-time. And fitting that model to these three parameters, we can tell you roughly how far away they are, how far spaced out they are, roughly when we will meet or see them. Uh, we can give you distributions over these key parameters of interest because we actually have these three parameters that are the ones you need to know this. And how much is your model relying on the fact that we don't observe aliens out there? Are you using that as your input? Well, that's one of the inputs for that sets one of the parameters. So. Uh, there are three parameters. There's a power law of how often they appear, and that power law has two parameters. It's got an overall constant, and it's got a power. And then the third parameter is just how fast they expand. And those are the three parameters of our model. And that last parameter, how fast they expand, uh, is set by the fact that we don't see them. So counterfactually, if they expanded really slowly, say 1% of the speed of light, then our model clearly predicts that we would see a lot of them out there. We'd see big basically circles in the sky that were large alien civilizations. Those circles would look different because they do things with their volume. They, they take over stuff and then they change it to achieve their ends. And if they expanded slowly, that's what we would see in the sky right now. But the model also says that as their speed of expansion gets closer to the speed of light, the prediction is that we don't see them. And so therefore we can say they are probably expanding at over half the speed of light. Okay, and, and just for the intuition is if something was expanding at the speed of light, we would see it at the exact same time it would hit us. Exactly, and not before. <laughs> now, does this work with the expansion of the universe? Does that yes. make it? Yes, so, so in our paper we work that out. And so um, you can think of this simple um, model in terms of a static universe, and then you can do a coordinate change to use that same model to describe an expanding universe, and then you have to switch between sort of clock time and ruler distance into a sort of model time and a model distance. But up until recently, that transformation is itself a power law. And so you, know, you still end up with the same power law uh, model, but with the parameters changed. Okay. So what's your median estimate for when we run into grabby aliens? Billion years. Okay. So quite a while. Right. And that's if we become grabby ourselves and go out to meet them. If we sit here and wait, then it would be twice as long. Okay. Okay, and I, I imagine the justification for an alien being grabby is it would want to get resources to do whatever it cares about or just want to protect itself from grabby right. hostile yeah, aliens. So the, the key idea here is that it just happens sometimes and, you know, there'd be some sort of competition where the different parts of this grabby alien civilization are rushing out to grab things before the others. And whichever ones are better at the competition will then succeed at, you know, spreading out of the net result of that competition would be a rapid expansion and changing of things. So certainly this is a scenario we've seen over and over again in biological evolution. 
uh, species evolve to to be more aggressive and expand when they can. We've even seen something similar in human cultural evolution. But uh, a more elaborate version of our model says uh, what happens is the first that civilizations like us appear that we call quiet, and then a transition happens sometimes to the loud ones. And a key parameter then in the model is what fraction of quiet ones ever become loud. And we're going to allow that fraction to be actually pretty low. And, and we actually have estimates of, of what fractions there would allow SETI uh, searches to actually find something. Uh, but So we don't require that every civilization that reaches our level becomes grabby. We just require that sometimes that happens. And we make a simplifying assumption, which I think is reasonable, that it happens relatively fast, i.e. within 10 million years. So we'd say our descendants might not become grabby, but if they do, they'll do it within 10 million years. That's that's giving a long time, right? Yeah, it does seem we'll either expand out to the stars or go extinct within 10 million years. Right. So that's why, you know, the model works that, that way. You say, you know, it's going to there's there might be a lot more of the quiet ones out there than grabby ones. The grabby ones are, of course, going to make a much bigger deal. Uh, they're the ones who set the deadline. That means you have to show up early. Otherwise, it's, it'll be too late. But for you know, searching for extraterrestrial intelligence, we'd be interested in how many quiet ones there are. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it turns out, for example, that um, that quiet one, uh, if we wanted to find one alien civilization active anywhere in our galaxy at the moment, we would need this ratio of quiet to loud to be something like a million. Oh. So if it's only a thousand, then, you know, there's almost no chance that there's another one active in our galaxy, at least according to our simple model. When we, we talk a little later, we'll talk about a, a different model that might make that more likely. Okay. But it's possible we could find the remains of a dead civilization if they build a Dyson sphere around their star and then right. went extinct so a million years we ago. We can also calculate, you know, what's the chance of ever seeing a, a dead one in the galaxy? That is, what's the chance there was ever a civilization, a quiet civilization ever in our galaxy? Mm-hmm. And it's still, now the odds get higher, but it's still actually pretty hard. We still might need this ratio to be over a thousand. Okay. Yeah, and that that does seem low. It does seem like we at least we have a reasonable high chance of right, becoming so grabby. Right. So the optimism about SETI is traded off against optimism about our future. The the higher our chances of becoming grabby and the more representative our chances, then the lower the chances are that we could actually see something out there right now. Okay. And I assume this is premised on the speed of light being the ultimate limit. There isn't a warp drive that you could develop. Oh, well, we assume that they haven't developed it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that would be the work, the key assumption that they, they expand at less than the speed of light. Because, of course, if they could expand much faster than the speed of light, then uh, basically the first one would take over the whole universe, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, if they can go backward in time, why then the first one fills all the universe all the way back to the Big Bang, right? Mm-hmm. In which case, there's no way we would be here, right? Unless we're the first. Mm-hmm. How do you handle the anthropic arguments that there'd be so many more beings alive, you know, in a in a grabby alien universe that we're probably in one and don't realize it? Yeah, I did a blog post on this in the last uh, two weeks, I think. Um, 
So there's there's several different versions of these anthropic arguments. Now, one version is this ratio between quiet and loud. Mm-hmm. So uh, sort of the density of grabby aliens in general is set by sort of this deadline of where we are in history. And so the higher this ratio of quiet to loud, then the more quiet civilizations there will be in space-time, and therefore, you know, the more chances there are for us to exist. And so anthropics would favor that ratio being higher, and it would favor that in proportion to that ratio, in the mm-hmm. sense that if you had a, a priori expectations, and then you take into account this anthropic effect, you would up it by that ratio. But still, you know, it, it's only constrained by how plausible this ratio could be to be large. So that's one effect. So that argument says, expect this ratio to be bigger than you would have thought. Okay. So it is a thousand. Okay. Uh, but then in addition, you might ask, um, well, what about just all those future creatures that we might, we might be? And uh, what I say in my blog post is, I don't see any way of spinning history such that we aren't special now in one way or the other. So it seems like we're stuck thinking we're special. Uh, that is, uh, we, we could imagine, like, we could think about all the animals that have ever existed on Earth before now, and there's been a whole lot of them. And then, you know, so far humans are still a pretty tiny fraction of all of that. And we could think about the vast descendants that will exist past us in the future. Mm-hmm. And in order for us to be sort of representative, we would need roughly equal numbers of those two, right? So that we could be, you know, from between 10% and 90% of all these things. Mm-hmm. And that number is just not very likely to be the true. I mean, it's, you know, that might be a solar system filled uh, civilization that lasts a million years or something, right? But it's, it's, there's this huge range of possibilities. It's hard to believe why we would sit right exactly at that point. And even if that model were true, we're still special, right? Because we're these first humans before, after all the animals and before all the post humans. And so I, I think you gotta just suck it up and say, yeah, we gotta be special. Well, what if only humans have consciousness? And the norm is for planets to experience exponential growth, industrialize, and a few hundred years after industrialization, they destroy themselves. Then that would make us ordinary, right? If you're going to insist that we couldn't be animals. Yes. They don't have consciousness, um, say. Yeah, or, I, don't, I don't buy that. <laughs> that doesn't make much sense to me. I mean, you know, ch- chimpanzees' brains are, aren't that different from ours. I don't see some special thing happening between chimp and human brains. Um, but... Uh, you know, even then, we're special with respect to all these post-humans, right? We were the first conscious beings, right? Mm-hmm. E- even in your story, we're special. Yeah, it depends on the, the reference class could be conscious beings or maybe beings that understand topics, but yeah, that, that might be cheating to get... No, but even if you do that, we're still going to be special, right? Because <laughs> oh, we're right at the beginning. But anyway, yeah. Well, I actually think these anthropic things are of limited use, and so... We tried to structure our gravity alien analysis not to rely on it, but uh, you certainly can apply it. And like I said, it does recommend more, a uh, higher ratio of quiet to loud. Okay. So uh, what are the the practical or intellectual implications of this gravity alien model? What Should we be thinking of different things or what? how does it change our understanding? Well, I would say, you know, the, the conclusion is, we know they're out there. We know roughly where they are and what they're doing and roughly when we'll meet them. And so that sort of answers some big questions that people have had in the past. And so in some sense, the biggest implications are just about cosmology broadly conceived. 
So, you know, humans have always thought in terms of a cosmology. That is, they not only knew about themselves and their immediate neighbors, but they, they had a picture or a story about everything. You know, where was everything and how big was everything and how long ago was everything and how far in the future is everything, right? And, and their place in relation to everything. And, you know, lately we've had a cosmology that you know, answers those questions, but it isn't very emotionally satisfying because it says that creatures like us are just this tiny insignificant fraction of the universe and that, you know, maybe we'll just go away and, and, and that's it. And so this gravity aliens cosmology is substantially different from that. It says, you know, the universe will be filled with life and advanced life. Uh, and complex life. And so we look out in the sky, what we see is the past universe, which is dead and empty, but the future universe will be full and lively. And that we are an actor in this story that is, we could become grabby or not. And that's this great question that would hang over us. You know, there's all these quiet civilizations who go away, and there's a small fraction of them who become the grabby big ones who expand out and meet each other. And Will we be up to the challenge of becoming one of those? And, and even then, there's the further challenge of when all these gravity civilizations meet, we don't know exactly what will happen. They might just stick with their borders where they meet or they might fight over things. But what's more clear to happen is they will learn about each other. So a billion years from now until another 150 billion years, there will be this era when all these civilizations can communicate with each other and learn about each other. And in that larger, you know, interaction, they will each ask themselves which of the other ones they respect and perhaps want to emulate to some degree. And we could hope to be one of the ones that's respected <laughs> and desired to be emulated, right? That's, that's an ambition, not just to survive and join this community, but to be respected by this community. So I think that sets a, just a very ambitious and grand cosmology for us. But how do we have any idea what they will respect and what they will want to admire? That's a hard question. And one of the things we will want to do is to try to guess what aliens are like. And one of our best data will be the quiet aliens we come across. Right? Mm -hmm. So until we meet the grabby ones, we may well meet remnants of quiet ones. Mm -hmm. If the ratio is a thousand to one, we might come across a thousand, at least remnants of quiet, a thousand quiet alien civilizations before we meet the gravity ones. Mm -hmm. And that would be a data set. And we would look at them carefully and say, what do we predict that if these things became grabby, you know, what kind of values would they have? What would they respect? Um, I suppose we, we could also uh, raise the, or uplift the intelligence of like octopuses or other species oh, sure. on earth and, and ask them what right? do you value? Right, so we could see a range of our descendants of our ancestors, but we might wonder if we had gone back far enough in our counterfactual. So, you know, key question is, even very early on, did Earth go a certain path that other places will go different? Mm -hmm. But still, it would be good data. Yeah. And of course, we could run lots of computer simulations where octopuses right. take over or the Nazis right, won. There's a vast space of parameters, and, and most yeah. of that simulation would be wasted if we're in the wrong corner of the space, so that's why the data would be really valuable. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, 
So there, there's a, some evidence that we've encountered non-grabby aliens. Right. Right, that, that the Navy recently issued a report saying they, they've seen UFOs and right. these UFOs seem to be doing things that defy physics. Um, I've had, you know, defy physics is, a, is, is, is the wrong phrase. Okay. <laughs> I mean, well, defy, defy our engineering capabilities, given, you know, what we know how to do with physics. Okay. I mean, as a physicist, I'm going to say, no, there's just no way they're defying physics. <laughs> okay, so they're, they're doing things not just a little bit beyond what we can do now. Right, no, no, quite a bit beyond our yes. engineering capabilities, absolutely. And these are, you know, the, we have the report from the Navy, there, these are things being observed by multiple planes, and by right. multiple sensor systems. They were yeah. you know, in the air, so, observed by radar, then they go in underwater and observed by underwater sensors. So I started this Grabby Aliens project back in December, and after, you know, a month or two working on it, I realized, well, okay, there's these UFO aliens concept. I, I better, I, I suppose I should read up on that. <laughs> and I was surprised to learn back then that uh, the evidence for UFOs is actually surprisingly strong, especially if you just compare it to other sorts of paranormal phenomena. Like if you looked at telepathy or, um, you know, faster, you know, time travel or, you know, other sorts of things like that. Uh, say ghosts. Uh, if you just look for the best evidence on ghosts that you can possibly find or on telepathy, it's pretty weak. Okay? It, it doesn't make me worry that much that, you know, we've just completely misunderstood things. But then when I look at the evidence on UFOs, I go, well, uh, hmm, damn. <laughs> it's actually kind of strong. Now, at this point, I want to say, but we want a division of labor in the world where the people who we believe are the people who have most studied a thing like this. And so I will just say, I've studied this enough to say, this doesn't look crazy. This looks plausibly like it might be true. But I don't want to like stake my reputation on saying exactly how likely it's to be true because this isn't my specialty. My specialty is a social scientist. And when I've read this literature, it seemed to me that they were just dropping the ball on doing the social science. And in fact, that was a bit of a norm. That is, the highest status UFO researchers, they actually say in writing and explicitly to each other, let's not talk about theories to explain the UFOs. <laughs> That'll make us look bad. <laughs> we just want to make everybody accept the idea that they really are there and there's something to explain, <laughs> which is kind of an odd stance. They're really important that we all agree that we need to explain these things, and yet it's really important that we not talk about how to explain them. Yeah. So... And, and social science is the key, I would think, to explain these things. That is, if you ask people, why is this hard to believe? It is actually social explanations, social stories that they find the hardest to swallow. So this explains why, why it's possible that the military has seen multiple objects that are acting like aliens, and yet this isn't something that everyone knows and talks about. Well, it's, it's obvious that there's been just a huge taboo on the topic for a long time. I mean, there, there's just no way to deny that. You know, and so pilots say, basically, you know, I've learned that if I want to keep my career, I just shut up about this. This is not the sort of thing I want to report. And in fact, like, uh, there's an interesting kind of lightning that w was observed for over half a century and yet was not believed to exist because pilots refused to report it. And then they caught it on some other you know, cameras from space, and then finally people decided to believe it. 
So, so this is actually pretty well documented. There, there's stuff pilots see in, in the sky and they just won't say anything because of the taboo about saying about weird stuff in the sky. Yeah, and another reason I find this plausible is that we put a huge amount of money and brain power into, you know, protecting our aircraft carriers and, to, you know, into, into our sensor systems. So multiple pilots observing these things, those are in some ways the best possible observation tools that we have for looking at well, strange phenomenon. I mean, they are designed to look at a particular kind of phenomenon, but they also are designed to be somewhat robust and to engage a range of things they didn't expect. But I mean, there is the issue of, you know, when you're looking for something, is your instrument designed for that thing or are you, is it designed for something else? Uh, but still, yeah. yeah. So, for example, at airports, airports have radars, but airports have radars that are tuned just to see planes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And when they see stuff that isn't planes, they just throw it out. The, the radar systems just throw away that data because uh, it's designed to see the planes. Mm-hmm. And they all know that. Uh, and so, of course, that's a problem when, you know, people see stuff in the sky near the airport and the airport says, well, yeah, but radar didn't show it. And then, of course, you say, yeah, but would the radar see it if, if it didn't? And they say, well, yeah, no. Yeah. Of course, in our, our military planes, we know that our enemies are trying to fool us or will in a war. Yeah, so, so they, presumably the radar yeah. system should be designed for a wider range of things, but it's actually harder to test that, right? So if you're hiring a contractor to build you a radar system and you tell them, you know, make sure it can find these planes and also, oh, make sure it can just see a lot of different stuff that we aren't, don't expect. Well, that second thing is harder to test when you buy it, right? You'd have to just show it a lot of weird stuff. Yeah. And, and I just doubt they actually do a very thorough job of that. Okay. Now, still, is it plausible that these are drones that were the technology has been developed in secret? Are they doing things that make that really unlikely? Well, well, so again, this is the key thing that the UFO researchers have dropped the ball on that you and I as social scientists have expertise on. And so this is where you and I should jump in and try to be careful and analyze things and tell people what we found. So, you know, the main potential explanations here, uh, you know, First, let's set aside two categories of explanations. One is just mistakes that, you know, people are just misreading something ordinary, right? That, right. That's long been acclaimed, you know, swamp gas, balloons, whatever, right? Yeah. Another class of explanation is hoax, mm-hmm. lies, that for some reason the U.S. government wants to lie about this. They want everybody to believe that they saw this stuff, maybe to scare the other people into backing off, right? Like, look, if you were China thinking of attacking the U.S. and you had some advantage, but you believe there might be UFOs around... Maybe that would make you back off a bit. I don't know, right? Yeah. You, you couldn't be so sure that your your attack would work out if you, there's this, you know, wild card out there. Then, you know, maybe this a strategy like that. Uh, but you would have had to make this hoax involve a lot of people over a really long time. So there's lots of UFO reports in other countries, including, say, Russia and China. <laughs> and, uh, and this goes back 70 years. So... Uh, I, this would have to be a hoax on a scale larger, say, than D-Day. So, as you know, may you know, on D-Day, they fooled the Germans into thinking they were going to invade somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And they worked really hard at that. And they you know, made inflatable tanks and did all sorts of things uh, and, and pulled it off, actually. But that was really important, and it wasn't something that lasted that long. Yeah. You know, so, But that's the second theory. Now, the other two classes of theories are, you know, that this is real stuff. It, it might not be physical objects in the way we think, so there is a plausible story that it might be project beam pro- 
beam projections. It's like a cat, you know, how you play with a cat with a laser. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you put the laser dot on the wall, and the cat paws at it, and you move the laser dot, and you can move the laser dot really fast, right? Right. So it is, you know, th theoretically possible, and people have explored in research, you know, small versions of, you know, sending a beam and having it ignite a, a plasma in some physical space, and then you can move that around fast. Mm -hmm. So that's a possible thing, but it still requires pretty advanced technology to do what we've seen with that. And it would be hard for that to dive into the water. I think you'd need a separate craft in the water. <laughs> you fool people. Or, or you'd need a beam that went into the water. But, <laughs> yeah, could, you know, but that would be harder. I mean, again, it, it just goes farther beyond what we know, right? So yeah. we've seen demonstrations now of you know lasers that make a little puff in the air and, and make it different colors and make it move around, right? But you're talking really large volumes here, and you're talking maybe water, and you're also talking... Where's the beam coming from, right? Yeah. In the lab where we do this demonstration, we've got a big piece of equipment a little farther away, which is the source of the laser, right? So, like, you know, out in San Diego, uh, you know, the ocean near San Diego, where, where is this huge other laser? And then you have the motivation. I'm sure the Chinese would love to be able to fool us with this kind of thing, but they wouldn't be showing it to us. They'd be waiting till they invade Taiwan to unveil yeah, So us. that's social science, right? So, yeah. so once we categorize these two major theories, right? So first I was just saying, it could, these could be physical objects or they could be beam projections. And then they, the two major categories is, this is that some organization on Earth that is, you know, known by somebody on Earth, or this is not from Earth, right? Those, those are the two main categories. Right. And now we need to use social science to try to think about basically priors and likelihoods. And, you know, as you know, in a Bayesian analysis, first you want to say, okay, say we had no data. We were just trying to guess which scenarios we thought were a prior, how likely. You know, what's our distribution of the scenarios? Mm -hmm. And then secondly, we want to say, okay, for each scenario, assume that's true. Assume that it played out the way that scenario specifies. What's the chance that what we would see is, is the result of that scenario? That is, what, what would that scenario produce? And how close is it to what we see? Right. Those are the two things you want to do in a Bayesian analysis. So here, you know, one class of theories is this is some other Earth organization. And now, you know, there's a spectrum of just how hidden it is. Is this like some James Bond lair on, on a secret island or something, right? <laughs> like, this secret organization, like, how long has it existed? How, what size budget does it have? How many people, you know, elsewhere interact with it or know with it? How far advanced could it be compared to everybody else? And as you know, like, the James Bond lair story usually just doesn't make any sense. They've got, like... 50 people on an island who somehow have a more advanced technology than the entire aerospace industry in the world or something, right? Right. And, and you know, that's just kind of crazy. So, and, you know, even 20,000 leagues under the sea, the famous thing, you know, there was, you know, a few hundred people who had a submarine and they built a city under the sea and they had, you know, then they make atomic weapons and everything else. It's like, what? <laughs> a few hundred people did all that? Come on. And, they, you know, a few hundred people can barely make a town run. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, now if it's some existing Earth organization that has a big budget and is well known, like China or Russia or something, now we could believe that, you know, they have a, would have a lot of people researching things and that they could have a lot of budget to do it. But now we go, okay, but how far adva further advanced than us could they plausibly get without us knowing about it? Yeah. And then... Even if they did, why would they use this method to show the world they had this ability? Yeah, and then why would they forego the likely profit opportunities? Of right, why don't they use it? it? I mean, throw their weight around, absolutely. Yeah. Tell us to redo the patent, you know, treaty or else. Right. 
Yeah, it did. So, I mean, but we still have to give it a prior, right? Mm-hmm. That's the game here. We won't have to say, okay, yes, it's unlikely, but but how unlikely, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I got to say, I'm going to put this like down below one in 10,000 or, or even one in 100,000. Yeah, I agree. It does seem very unlikely. I think if this is the explanation. The most likely is it's a branch of the U.S. government that's testing it on the U.S. government and using the no one will believe it's aliens to say, ah, we can test it on our pilots to see if they're fooled, figuring even the pilots talk. Right. But how long have they been doing this? For 70 years? Yeah. When did they suddenly get this ability, right? And if they've had it for 70 years, why have they been, like, (laughs) doing all this other stuff? (laughs) I mean... If they've known how to do this for seven years, why haven't they been using it? Uh, so I just I have to put the odds. But again, it's all about how low do the odds go. So the likelihood ratio here is pretty high. We'd say, well, if they had some sort of ability to make these beam projections, and they've just had it for a long time, and it's really good, and they can do these beams from a far away, and they have the beam source they can hide really well, you know, that, that's a bunch of assumptions, right? And, and they've had this for many decades. Now, do we have good evidence for these kind of UFOs decades ago? Uh, well, the question is, what counts as good enough? But when I looked at it, I'd say it's pretty good. Okay. Uh, but, you know, it, it it varies a lot. And, you, you know, you're trying to make this wait. Should I just look at the few best cases or look at the distribution of a wider range of cases? And, you know, that's tough. Uh, but... You know, certainly, like, you're probably thinking of the Nimitz case here, right, when you're thinking of, of some of the strongest evidence yeah. that you're mentioning, right? Yeah. But, you know, that goes back to 2000. You know, look, that's 15 years ago. Well, 17 years ago now, right? Mm-hmm. So that's actually a fit way in the past. And there's a lot of these pretty dramatic sightings that go, you know, back much farther and that are actually pretty hard to explain. So, but, you know, but I think we, we have to leave this on the table, right? We, we can't exclude this yet, right? Yes, play. Yeah, especially since all the other possibilities are low probability that we can't just dismiss particular low probability occurrence. Or right, right, that's right. We want to focus on the highest probabilities of things we can find. So the last category here is, okay, it, it really is away from Earth, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the theory that I put a bunch of work in trying to estimate a prior for. That That is, I tried to say, okay, what would be the most plausible story that could explain this? And then, you know, how plausible is that? And what I think I was able to come up with was something that's pretty plausible, and I roughly ballparked the prior at one in a thousand, you know, over one in a thousand. I'd say, and, and that's a higher prior than I would give to the, uh, you know. Okay, so see, what exactly do you mean by there's a one in a thousand chance that if we had never encountered any evidence from UFOs that we would think they'd be visiting us? Or, yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. Uh so if, and that they would visit us in this way. So that, that's an important caveat. But that is, so when we, when we say, like, there's UFO encounters, what would it take to explain that? I think the first thing to do is just identify what are the strangest, hardest things to explain about these apparent encounters. And that's the, you know, the first important thing to do is just identify what is the apparently puzzling evidence that needs to be explained. Okay, yes. And so I would say that comes down to sort of two key categories of things to be explained. And the first one, I think, is just something a lot of people don't think so much about. So, you know, our standard best theories of the universe say that, in fact, you know, it starts out dead and then life appears and evolves and sometimes becomes advanced, right? Mm -hmm. 
So our standard best theories predict aliens, right? Yeah. And pretty directly, they say there are aliens out there. Uh, and so the only question is, okay, but would they be here now? And in particular, here now, but nowhere else we see. And that last part is really the sticking point. Like, if we looked out there and we saw aliens everywhere, right, far away, then the idea that aliens might be hanging around here would be vastly more plausible, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that wouldn't be hard to believe at all, right? Right. So the problem is we look out there and we see nothing. And then around here, people say they see something. So now the puzzle is, okay, why are they here now, but nowhere else we see? So that's something we need to come up with a theory that could explain it. And I think I have a plausible story that I'll explain in a minute. But now, first, now I want to just mention the other thing that we have to explain. Okay. The other that? thing we have, we have to explain is, okay, they're here now, but they're playing this coy game. Okay, you know, they, they could land on the White House lawn and announce themselves and, like, say, hey, everybody, we're here, and, you know, do whatever, right? right. That's completely within their power. Or it should be completely within their power to be completely invisible. Yeah. Look, whatever they want to watch about us, they could watch from orbit with a dark satellite we'd never see. You know, they could completely read our telecommunications. I mean, you know, there is no reason they would need to be flying around all the time in shiny things at night, like things that are lit up at night and big invisible near, you know, radar based aircraft carriers. Right. There's just no reason they would need to do that if they wanted to hide. Right. Right. And, you know, and there's been actually like over 100,000 UFO reports in the last you know decades. Right. So so we're talking a lot. They didn't just like buzz around once just to check something. Right. Um, so, so that's the thing to explain is why they are somewhat visible, but only saying sort of near an edge of visibility. What's with this coy, like showing themselves, but only barely? Yeah. That's the other big thing to explain. So we need we, we as social scientists want to ask. How unlikely are these things? Because the more unlikely they are, the more we're going to have to say probably is mistakes, probably is a hoax, right? Because we don't have any other explanation, right? That's the game. Right, right. Okay, so what are your your theories for these two puzzles? Okay, so the first one is why would they be here now and nowhere else we see? Mm -hmm. Okay, so first element is panspermia siblings. <laughs> So what do you mean by so that? So in the, in the gravity aliens model, the simple model says, you know, they show up every once in a while. But the, the typical spacing between gravity alien civilizations is like one every million galaxies. All right. Okay. So they're just really far spread apart. So that means if the nearest one is a million galaxies away, like they would have to travel a really long way to get here. And, and you know, there's. And why would they just travel with one little thing? Why doesn't their whole civilization travel and then be this huge circle in the sky? Mm -hmm. Okay. So Panspermia sibling says um, that there was an Eden before Earth. There was a previous planet on which some evolution happened. And then that planet, you know, some rock fell on it and kicked up another rock from that planet with life on it. And then that rock seeded the stellar nursery that gave rise to our sun. So... Stars are born not by themselves. They're born in nurseries of hundreds to thousands of stars that are all born at the same time in the same place. Mm -hmm. Very closely. With lots of rocks flying around between them. So if a rock had seeded that stellar nursery, it likely would have seeded the whole nursery. 
And so there would be a whole set of siblings of the sun, all of which were seeded with life. Okay. Maybe a thousand or even 10,000 stars all together at once. And now all these stars have a very distinctive spectral signature because they all have the same mixture of chemicals. And so we can actually see them in the sky. We've seen some of them already. So they're easy to see from a long way off. So the idea is then that um, all of these planets that went down the past path to try to evolve more advanced life, and one of them succeeded at getting to our level before us. Okay, so your basic point here is that even though pro almost certainly the vast majority of galaxies never give birth to advanced civilizations, it's far more likely that our galaxy has extra civilizations than it is a random galaxy because it's possible life developed in our galaxy and the stars and it you know the hard part was developing the, the first replicators or getting to a point where you could once these things fell on different planets they would sort of see it right there's a correlation in where you expect to see life if life moves between stars and planets okay you expect yeah. them to be near each other mm -hmm. so that's why we might expect aliens some aliens to be near us okay that because they that could have sense. shared our origin they could have came from the same stellar nursery. And they just happened to be, I guess we wouldn't exist if they were grabby, but they... Right, exactly. So we were fortunate the that they were non-grabby. The first, the first aliens that came out of this nursery were not grabby, or did not turn grabby yet, right? And that means, but they did develop the capacity to travel, right? So one way to become not grabby is just to die fast. That must not have happened, right? Uh, another way to become not grabby is to never expand. I say never develop the ability to travel between the stars or somehow prohibit it, right? Yeah. That can't be true because you know, they're here. So we're, we're pushed to a scenario where they have prevented themselves from becoming grabby. That is, they've got, say, a world government and they've got a law, a rule that says you can't go out and be grabby. It might be an environmental policy, it might be some sort of religious thing, it might be just the central government fears it would lose control, and, and they like to keep control, maybe they just really treasure their ability to regulate their society, and a decentralized society spread across the scars could no longer be regulated. For any of those reasons, or perhaps more, they chose to make a rule that they won't get grabby. That is, they won't let any part of themselves fly off far away and start expanding out of control. Mm -hmm. So that's their rule, and they're following that rule. Okay, but they are capable of traveling between the stars. So right off, this gives a motive for why they'd be here, right? We are at risk of breaking this rule. Mm -hmm. we, we don't know about the rule, and we don't necessarily be inclined to follow the rules, so if they're going to enforce this rule, they have to come here to do it. Right. Right, and they have to either, relatively soon, I suppose, they have to tell us what's going on, or... Now, under this whole model, they would have, you know, they would have developed many millions of years ago. They would be millions of years ahead of us, maybe even billions. So, and they would only, they'd be somewhere in the galaxy, that is, the, the siblings of, of the sun spread around a disk, uh, you know, a circular disk around the center of the galaxy, so that's where they all are, and they're only, that's where they're only a few thousand light years away, so... They're a few thousand light years away, and they are many millions of years older than us, which means 
and they was really easy to find us, right? They just had to have our level of telescopes, honestly, yeah. <laughs> to look out on the galaxy and find the siblings. So they would have known right from the beginning that there were these other sibling stars out there and that they potentially could evolve advanced life. And so they might have taken their time about it, but within a few million years, they would have sent stuff to be here to wait around to see what happens here. Mm-hmm. So those things probably appeared here many millions of years ago. So they've been waiting. Uh, now, you know, one way to enforce the rule would be easy, just kill us, right? right. They could have just wiped out the Earth, right? That, that would be well within their powers. Well, then that's, then, that seems inconsistent with not wanting to change the status quo of the universe. Well, yes, yeah, it does seem a little inconsistent. So clearly they didn't want to kill us all, right? And so yeah. somehow they value something about what we are independent of them. And so that suggests the hypothesis that while they want us to follow their rule, they don't want to do it in a ham-fisted way. Mm-hmm. They don't want to just come in and declare their rule and point guns at us and say, you better follow our rule or we'll shoot you, right? Yeah. Uh, they wanted us to organically develop, but they also want us to follow their rule. Okay? So that's that's their design problem. Like, how did they get us to do that? And I'll add a few more constraints to this design problem. So, again, we're thinking about it from these aliens' point of view. So first of all, you would say they've got a world government and they've got this rule that nobody can get out of control and go become grabby, right? Right. That's probably easier to enforce on people who stay home than who fly away. So if they send anybody away from home, they got to watch those people really especially carefully, right? Yeah. So that they don't become grabby, right? Right. Because that would be the great excuse to go, be, oh, well, we're going to go watch the earthlings. And then when you get there, you, you expand, you become grabby, right? And right. then it's too late. So they're... Home is going to be very wary of giving a lot of discretion and powers to these local visitors. Mm-hmm. So they're going to want a plan they could figure out way in advance, way back at home and approve, and then just send the resources required to implement that plan and not allow much else discretion. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a pretty high constraint, right? No, there's this alien planet you don't know that much about. There's going to be advanced creatures on there eventually, maybe. You don't know much about them. You need a plan. So that, you know, you won't destroy them, hopefully, and that they will follow your rule. And you need a whole plan about how to do that, that you can pre-approve from home millions of years beforehand. Yeah. Sound hard, right? Yeah. Okay, so I, ha- I have a plan. <laughs> I-, I-, I have an idea for what the plan would be that roughly fits what we see. All right, what is it? Okay, so... First, let's assume that robustly, like we see on Earth, social animals have status hierarchies. Okay. That, that's pretty robust on Earth. Yeah. Okay. There's rankings, right? Right. And in status hierarchies, people defer to the high-status people, right? Yes. And uh, furthermore, we might think that uh, robustly, minds that evolve in the universe, like will be near predators and therefore have sort of a hypersensitivity for agents, right? So it's like the story, why did our ancestors believe in gods, right? Simple stories. Well, first, they just believe spirits were everywhere. Why did they believe that? Because their minds were just hypersensitive to watch out for predators. Those predators in the woods, then every time you hear a funny noise, you're wondering, is that a predator? And you're wondering, is a mind behind it, right? Yeah. So, you know, you just are willing to believe there are minds everywhere. And, you know, when you look up at the clouds and you say thunder and lightning, you think, well, that's a, that's, there's a mind behind that, right? Yeah. And 
that seems like a relatively common sort of scenario, right? Especially like, like if we could see inside our brains and we could see our thoughts forming there, then we would know that our minds are actually implemented in brains, right? But we couldn't see inside our brains and it really wasn't important to think about that for most of the purposes of our brains. So we didn't really see our thoughts happening in our brains. We just thought our thoughts about the world around us and, and we did things. And so if we project minds into the world around us, then we're just kind of willing to believe there's a lot of minds all over the place. And then we believe they, they range very widely in power, right? And so that's where gods come from, right? <laughs> so in your tribe or society, there's these people and there's the highest ranked person. But then you look up in the sky and you see lightning and you say, well, there's somebody even higher than that, right? Mm-hmm. And so you create this idea of a you know supernatural hierarchy of even more powerful creatures. And then the local people try to fit themselves in that hierarchy. You say, the king says, I speak for God. Yeah. So you should do what I say because God's behind me. But, you know, everybody looks and they see the lightning and they figure, okay, there's somebody bigger than the king because the king can't do lightning. So, so the idea is here is just, you know, in general, minds, uh, you know, not only have status hierarchies, but they also, you know, are willing to believe in even bigger creatures than they see directly. Right? There could be these really huge creatures, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and in the past, when we believed those things, you know, when they we thought they told us what to do, we were kind of inclined to do it, right? Not not just out of fear, but off, out of respect and reverence that, you know, these were the highest status creatures around and, and, and uh, you know, they had an inclination of what was best and, and maybe that was best. Yeah, people certainly follow religious beliefs, especially right, when they believe God is real. Beliefs that supposedly come from powerful creatures. Right. Right. The wisdom trans- transmitted by powerful creatures, much more powerful than the people you see around you, that's pretty tempting to follow, right? Yeah. Okay, so so the UFOs think way back on their home planet, they say, we're going to be these gods. We're going to go to the strange creatures out there, and we're just going to hang around and look like they're gods. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, we're just going to show that we are actually agents, that is, like, we're intelligent, and we, we have, you know, de- we determine our actions, and we think about things, and we react to things. Like, we're, we're not just, you know, random clouds or something. We are agents. We are very capable. We will really impress them with our capability, you know, just like, you know, gods have always done, right? Mm-hmm. And then that's it. We will not talk to them. We will just hang back in the distance and be impressive and let them figure out our goals because they, in fact, can't because we've just already done that here. Well, there's a testable implication of this theory. There's my wife is a classics professor and she showed me a paper about UFOs seen in the ancient world. I assume you have not read that. I've seen those sorts of things before, but I haven't seen that particular paper, though. Okay, what would you predict if your theory is true? What shape would the UFOs take, assuming these were aliens to the people in the ancient world? I mean, I would just assume the aliens don't know much about the details of human culture. They're just going to pick a single generic strategy and just follow it consistently all through history. That would be the simplest prediction. So... They're just going to be the same sort of triangles and circles and uh, simple geometric geometric shapes. Okay. And and they will just, you know, be big enough to see and be, you know, dramatic enough to be really impressive. That that would be the simple prediction. Like, it would... Now, I mean, there's this question, how much do they understand about us, right? 
And in order to like really understand as well, they'd have to have like placed microphones and little detectors all around our lives and world so they could just hear what we say and maybe translate it and maybe read what we have. Like that would just require a lot of ability on their part. And so I'm I'm trying to think of theories that don't require that much ability. Because okay. the more abilities we require, then the more discretion the home will have to give to them, right? Mm -hmm. And and maybe if they've had a world government for millions of years, their world government is kind of incompetent. <laughs> I actually not that feel that great confidence in what a world government would face no competition for millions of years. How flexible is it? Especially if they've sort of maxed out on technology and their technology doesn't evolve very fast. And, you know, they built up their infrastructure and they don't need to invent new things. They're not even allowed to invent new things. You know, maybe they're just not very good at coming to a whole strange alien culture and figuring out what they're doing. Okay. Okay. Although not destroying yourself with, a, you know, having the ability to do so for a million years is kind of impressive. Right, right. It's definitely impressive. Uh, absolutely. So you got to give them credit. Now, uh, another consideration here, I think, is here's, I think, something they can predict. Like, because we see it from ourselves. Like, when we meet people from foreign cultures around the world... We are often offended by really tiny differences between them and us, right? And yeah. then we decide they're the enemy, and, you know, even if they're impressive, we're, we need to fear them and run away from them or crush them or something, right? Right. So this strategy of the aliens, they want to sit at the top of our status hierarchy, but that's fairly fragile if there's a way to see them as hostile and as, as evil and weird, right, mm -hmm. in, in a negative way. So, I mean, but of course they are actually aliens, right? So yeah. almost surely if they told us 10,000 things about themselves, we would find 100 of them offensive. Yeah. And maybe deeply offensive, right? Maybe they eat puppies, right? I, I don't know. But we'd be grossed out and offended and, and consider them evil. So so this is a problem with their strategy, right? Mm -hmm. If they if they just show up and they talk to us and they wave around their impressive abilities, we will see that they are just not one of us. Like in U.S., in, in world history – Humans have often gone to foreign lands and sort of taken over, right? Mm -hmm. And then there was a conflict because the foreigners had different customs, maybe a different religion, and that felt kind of awkward. They felt like the enemy, but often these people gave in anyway and sort of accepted the foreigners as their elites, and then they basically, over you know centuries, became the top of that society, right? Because they were close enough. Mm -hmm. There were still humans. You could still mate with them. Uh, you could you know still interact with them and come to sort of see them as like you. You know, this says we're talking about Babylon 5, there was an alien right. race, the Vorlon, and they didn't say very much. And the writer I read said that, yeah, he didn't want the Vorlon to say very much because he wanted them to come across as godlike and above us. And exactly. the less they said, the more impressive yeah, it seemed. If you ever see that quote, please send it to me. Because okay. if you remember what episode it was, because, I mean, I, I did watch Babylon 5 a long time ago, but... Yeah. Uh, it would take a while to go through all the episodes to find something like that. And that, you know, you, I guess you're thinking of a quote, not even actually. What yeah, it's something the writer wrote about. Right. Yeah, but so, yeah, so that's, that's the idea here. Right. And he, he's got it exactly right. <laughs> the Vorlons are, I mean, so the, the other side, I mean, I forget their name, but, you know, they're the evil bad guys. The Shadows. Really, like, Shadows, right. So then we, you know, and just being dark is enough to make them evil, right? I mean, think about this, right? <laughs> just, just being kind of black makes them look evil, right? <laughs> If that's all it takes, you know, the aliens have no chance, right? Yeah. <laughs> How many different features of themselves could they show us before we found one that we hated? <laughs> they're, they're, they're just in trouble, right? So the simple strategy is just to hardly say anything. That's it. They just wave around us and show their, they're there, show they're impressive, but don't let us see very much. Don't, don't let us figure out their technology. Certainly we can't, don't let us track them to their home base, right? Mm -hmm. 
you know, if they got a place they're coming from, the beams are coming from, or the, or the ships are coming from, they don't want us to find it, right? Because <laughs> uh, then they'll have to, like, put around a perimeter and shoot us down if we could try to approach it, and, you know, that like, looks more hostile. So they just want to hang on the periphery of our, our vision, like, showing us that they're there and not letting us learn too much about them, but letting us draw the inference that we can draw right here, which is what? They have a rule against gravity. Because we can figure that out from just the fact that they're here. They don't like gravity. And they have a world government. And you know what? Maybe we'll do that too. <laughs> right? They're, they're really impressive. They're better than us. And as there's actually this, this really remarkable consistent phenomena when people seem to encounter UFOs or something and they have some sort of emotional impression about what they thought the UFOs wanted. They usually say the same sort of things, right? We're hurting our planet. We're, we're just, you know, the universe doesn't like us. We're being too aggressive. We need to get together and, and stop fighting each other. That's what people say over and over again. And that's probably without any sort of, you know, actual alien influence on their minds. <laughs> that's just where our minds seem to go. Okay, that doesn't seem like a high enough probability of success strategy. So you're, so yeah, oh, I'm, I'm sure they also have just some guns to blow us out of the water if we don't. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that would also have to be a heart of the home strategy. There's no way they just yeah throw all their eggs in this basket, right? So is this so, not even? Even if we cross it, they they blow us up, or or they take us over. So there, there, there's that line out there, and we have to kind of know that uh, we have to be worried about crossing that line. And we don't know what that line is, so it, it could be no, what SpaceX don't. is doing. That's right. Is we don't cross? know. So SpaceX is an existential risk to our species. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> as is every as in. AI research, if it might cross the threshold, well, we don't know what the threshold is defined in terms of. And one plausible threshold was sort of the development of nuclear power and weapons. Uh, and, you know, by the reports, the UFOs were just a lot more interested in hanging around those things. Mm -hmm. But um, but apparently that wasn't the trigger, because <laughs> here we are. Yeah. But it might have been a trigger for closer scrutiny, right? So, I mean, the plan from far away would be to just do some flying around and being impressive for millions of years. But then, you know, near the crucial period, you, you would turn on more resources and, and do more, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that could well be. Once they saw these nuclear weapons, nuclear power, they saw sort of, the, you know, the isotopes that wouldn't otherwise be seen, the decay particles. They said, aha, they've got nuclear power. That's a trigger for, okay, we're close. Okay. So this predicts there's a reasonable chance in the next hundred years that they'll make their presence even more explicit. They'll communicate or blow something up or destroy us. Right. Although, I mean, it's nearly as equally likely that we will just slowly collect more data and become more convinced there exists, right? So, so the strategy is depending on them having us believe they exist, mm -hmm. right? But it doesn't seem to require anything other than just this continual showing themselves at a distance. You know, they could feel pretty confident that we would eventually figure out they exist. I mean, let's say that happens. We, you know, everyone pretty much, all the elites think, yeah, they're aliens flying around. They're not, you try to communicate with them, it fails. Do you think that would be enough for us to say, let's not send that ship to colonize that other star system? It might well. But, I mean, that's what they're gambling on, it would be the idea. So, I mean, maybe you think about it this way, right? We're their siblings, right? Mm -hmm. In this whole universe of aliens, we're, we're, we're family. 
Yeah. So they don't want to kill us. They, they feel some affiliation with us, right? Now, you, you may well kill your brother if he does something bad enough, but you want to give him the benefit of the doubt first, right? Mm -hmm. So they're trying to give us the benefit of the doubt. They're saying, you know, we look like we might, you know, grow up and, and become mature and see things the reasonable way that they see things. And they want to give us a chance to do that. And sort of showing that they exist, you know, if we're smart, which we are, is enough basically to tell us what their priorities are. Okay. And the reason they're not sending radio signals from their home planet to us is because we might grow to dislike them, you're saying? Because that's the way they wouldn't have to see control yeah, of something off true. planet. But that's probably not so good at the threat, right? They really need us to believe that if we don't play ball, they, they will destroy us. Right. And that, that would be pretty easy if they sent radio messages like, look, we'll, we're fine with you staying on Earth, but just don't do these things, and if you do, we'll be really mad. That would probably cause most yeah, of no, us but I mean, to say we they, they need to be nearby to execute this threat. That is, if we suddenly expanded and sent out, you know, a billion probes <laughs> to a billion stars all at once. Oh, no, I was thinking of both, that you have the ships flying around clearly on Earth, but you also, from your home planet, you know, wherever you think there might be life that will eventually develop, you just continually beam a bunch of radio messages. Yeah, but then you're telling us where they are. That's so I guess, true. you know, they are kind of worried about us. I mean, they think they're pretty advanced compared to us, and they're pretty sure that they can beat us in a fight, but... You know, they can't be that sure. Um, you could actually... we're, we're aliens, right? <laughs> Remember, you know, especially from the point of view of their home planet, like, this is, they're thinking about millions of years in the future, something on that planet becomes advanced. What's my, what's our plan? That, that's the situation they're planning in, right? That, that, a situation where there's a lot they don't know. And so they're just trying to come up with a very safe, very reliable plan. So telling, telling these earthlings where they are seems a needless risk. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you might say like, why not go put a broadcaster somewhere else and broadcast from there? Right. Uh, but that's more just saying, hey, we exist. Now the question is like, what's going to be in the message? If you just want like a beep 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 that says we exist, I mean, but again, that makes them far away, right? So the key thing is they don't want to be seen as other. They don't want to be seen as enemy, hostile foreigners, right? They want to be part of our status hierarchy, mm -hmm. and that means they need to be here. Yeah. You know what, I definitely agree. I mean, they could be both here and the message could be from farther away. Right, but the far farther away really, you know, emphasizes the foreign origin. Mm. Okay. Well, then the ships that are here could have messages that only, you yeah, know, we could, could eventually be able to decode. and Right, and, and for all I know, they do. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but again, you know, we have to think of this a pretty minimal strategy, right? Mm-hmm. And so whatever message they have, there are messages that are not to be seen until we're ready, right? Right. So they've encoded them in such a way that we won't even notice them until we... So maybe it's a certain kind of like particle they're sending out that we don't even know how to see. Mm -hmm. And until we have a detector for that kind of, say, it's a dark matter particle, maybe, right? Yeah. <laughs> we don't even know what dark matter is yet, right? So we certainly don't have a detector for it. And maybe they send out dark matter particles and the signals in that, and we won't hear it until we can read dark matter, which shows that we've passed a certain threshold in our understanding. And that is consistent with them not wanting to disturb the natural state of the universe too much. They'll wait till kind of the last minute where we're like, okay, you guys are about to disturb the universe, so we kind of have to change things. Right. Yeah, so you, you try to give your brother the benefit of the doubt. If he still seems to be going in the wrong direction, then just right before the last possible moment, you say, brother, 
I really have to stop you here. <laughs> so that predicts that there's if we like explore moral theory correctly, we might come to the conclusion that we, we should be non-grabby. If you believe that there is a moral theory that's objective and that you want to follow it, then yeah. Or just from evolutionary psychology, that any sure. being that would evolve would come to right. this theory, or, or I mean, a lot would. I mean, this is what we do internally. Like, status and prestige are enormous drivers of behavior within our societies. And so people fight very hard to rise to the status of the static hierarchy. And then, in fact, everybody else does pretty much what the high status people did. Like this happened in the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> that was a remarkable fact, I thought, uh, that very early in the pandemic, the usual public health experts had a certain set of recommendations about what to do. And then elites around the world talked about it and they came up with a different idea of what to do. And then suddenly everybody did that. <laughs> everybody did that because, you know, we all do actually defer to our elites. You know, yeah. If they say something, they know best. They, they're the most impressive people around. They're at the top of our organizations. And if they decide that something's the best thing to do, we all just go along. And for most people, for most of the time, that's probably the best strategy, at least in right, a successful society. Absolutely. But it, what it means is, if, and in fact, it's a standard thing for persuasion. So like when, when, when advocates like want to know how to convince the world to say like gay marriage or whatever it is, like one standard thing is, well, let's get the elites behind us, and then everybody else will follow along, right? And so yeah. advocates quite often emphasize and focus their efforts on persuading elites. Yeah. So once you catch... becoming elites, right? They have people that are on their side, and they just try to push those people to become elites, right? They give them scholarships to go to colleges and et cetera, right? Yeah. And so that's, in a sense, what the aliens are trying to do. <laughs> they're, they're trying to persuade our elites and become our elites. Yeah. Though, I mean, they're doing a very bad job of it. I mean, our elites, I mean, the masses believe in UFOs, but the elites don't. Not yet. But, I mean, they, they, they're playing this long game, right? So, so like, imagine that, uh, like, aliens were buddies with the elites of 300 years ago, <laughs> right? Well, how would that look today? Well, now, now people would, like, think of those aliens as bad guys, right? Because we think of the elites of 300 years ago as bad guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. So... You know, you have to get your timing really right if you if you buddy up with the elites at any one moment. So they're safer just not tying themselves to the current elites and playing the long game. Eventually, the elites will accept that they exist. Eventually, we'll just have clear enough data. And I don't know if they could have predicted that elites would resist their resist believing them when they did. Uh, you know, maybe that's predictable. Maybe that's just kind of random. But they can probably come to believe the elites will eventually have to admit. And you know what? That'll, that'll make people sympathetic to the aliens, honestly. All these years where the elites denied the aliens and the ordinary people believed in them, I think the aliens will come off looking pretty good out of that. Would it be like COVID where the elites always believed it was a big threat and always <laughs> yes, wanted you wearing a mask? Sure. That'll sure. be... <laughs> they'll try that, for sure. But, I mean, still some people will know. We didn't want to scare you. We knew aliens were real and... But, right, but I mean, now everybody knows that the elites of you know 1500, you know, told you that there was there were there were angels and demons and that stuff, right? Yeah. And we all look back at those elites and say, yeah, they weren't so good, hot, right? <laughs> Although we kind of suspect that some of them were lying. We're like, well, yeah, yeah. they had to sure. say that. But but when they like interacted with you know foreign powers, we're we're less sympathetic to our, you know, ancestor elites, knowing that they they lied about a bunch of stuff. So what do you think would happen to our society if we come up with conclusive evidence that, yeah, we're being regularly, you know, aliens are popping around us and 
they're flying around. Well, so, so I think you and I should, at least me, admit that this is kind of deflating news. And this is one of the reasons perhaps elites have been reluctant to embrace it. Look, I mean, you know, we used to think, at least we could think, there's this whole universe out there and that we, the elites of this society, were going to sort of determine the future of the universe. That makes us pretty big shots, right? Right. And now, well, there's competitors out there. Even with gravity aliens, right, there's competitors out there. We, we're not going to rule the universe unless we can meet a challenge that's hard to meet. Mm-hmm. And so we're likely not to, actually. Uh, but with the UFO aliens, now it's worse. We've got a big brother around. So and Big Brother has 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 a plan for our lives, and it's going to be hard to resist Big Brother's plan. So we we don't get to get astronomical gains in the future. We don't get to colonize a trillion worlds. We might if we can convince Big Brother, but it's <laughs> you know, so like, in an old historical, it's it's an old trope of movies, right? That in ancient societies, you couldn't just decide your future by yourself. If the family decided your future, right? Mm-hmm. Family told you who you were going to marry. Family told you what job you were going to take. And that's just how your life is going to go. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is this is family, right? Big Brother has a plan for us, and you know that means it's going to be much harder for us to uh, convince Big Brother to to let us do our plan, whatever we come up with, because Big Brother has a plan. Although this is good news if you are very much afraid of a paperclip maximizer that we're going to create an artificial general intelligence yeah, that will. It is now, as you know, I'm I'm less worried about that right. than many, but clearly, right. you know, they don't seem very worried about that, right? <laughs> Yeah. They clearly they think that if we make a paperclip maximizer anywhere here in some lab on Earth, it doesn't threaten them. They're fine. Yeah, or they'll stop it. But yes. yeah, they, I mean, but they they probably don't need to be in the lab the moment it turns on to stop it, right? Right, right. They think that if it does the you know get me out of the box thing, that they're not going to fall for that. Yeah, and they're they're probably right. <laughs> They've been here before, right? Yeah. So almost certainly the aliens are artificial. But let's just put that out front. But these are not probes they sent. There is no difference between probes and aliens at their level of development. Everything about them is artificial. Yeah, it would just from what we would guess, it it would seem if you solve physics, you could do a lot more if you were a computer program or than if you're just a million years of programming is still plenty enough, right? Look, some people think we're going to get AGI in the next twenty years. Mm -hmm. If you give me a million years, (laughs) right? Well, almost surely they've done it, right? Come on. Yeah. But whatever could be done although, in a million years, they've done it. Although you could argue that maybe that's the reason they're not grabby. They, that's the reason they don't want power centers to go out. They're like, hey, a paperclip maximizer, that's very likely. So we don't want to let anyone get too far away from us because they might create, you know, you know, foom, they might create a intelligence explosion. So we're going to keep everyone near us so we can monitor them constantly. So maybe it's just, a big threat. I just don't think that works as an equilibrium because... You know, whatever this thing you're afraid of exploding is, if you just make another thing that's as powerful as it, then, uh, you know, they they balance each other off. So, uh, as you know, like, just preventing anybody from ever making an advanced computer seems kind of crazy on a million-year timescale, right? M- much more plausible to, to make an advanced computer, but make a good one, and then, and, and then you know, have it be, in, be around first. And then the bad one is less of a problem. I mean, well, I don't know. I mean, it could be that that's how they solved the problem early on, that they're like, well, we're just we're going to survive by cutting off computer research and we're going to put in automatic mechanisms. And that's how you survive a million years. 
so they never developed it because they were just well, afraid to so come close. Under that scenario, they should be really paying close attention to our computers, right? Yes. There should be alien viruses in our computers watching what they're doing, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually a pretty solid prediction. That that is, it would be hard to, for them to monitor our computers without like having some actually even hardware taps, maybe, right? Maybe right. there's little pieces of dust that sit on our near our computer chips and just track all the signals and you know watch what's going on, right? Yeah, yeah. They would have to be doing that if if that was their concern, right? Right. And that would be a clear prediction of this theory. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, and then they would be, and then of course they they'd have their finger on some button. Another issue here, theory, is that it's there's a lot of details in it, and of course, as you know, the more details in a theory, probably all else equal, the less likely it is to be true. So I tried to do an exercise to sort of just list which are the key details and sort of give me a prior estimate, and that's where I came up with this one in a thousand prior. So you know, let's walk through them though. Okay. So first of all, is panspermia true? That is, is there you know is there typically two planets? Right, a first planet and then a second one, and the second one, you know, is seeded at its birth. You know, those those aren't crazy assumptions. I'd even give them each like more than one in ten chance, mm -hmm. uh, both for panspermia being true and for uh, you know the main seeding to be at the birth of a uh, a star, which means basically the whole nursery gets seeded. Okay, yeah, that seems reasonable to me. Okay, next we just have this. And they decide not to be grabby. Yeah. Right? And they, they have a call. So I actually, and they have a world government. So I actually think a world government is even more likely than not. I, I think, you know, world government is kind of an attractor. So that's a thing that's pretty likely to happen in our future. There's a lot of big risks associated with it, but it's, it's pretty damn likely to happen. Yeah, I, that makes sense to me, too. And then, the, and this world government then decides a policy against being grabby. Yeah. And that actually seems pretty likely to be, you know, more than one quarter. Okay. I'm not sure I buy that, but then we're getting into, you know, what would it, I mean, wouldn't evolution favor life that would want to spread out? Without the world government. <laughs> yeah, so that's why you, I mean, okay. you need the world government to have this policy, and then they stop it, right? And so that's, you know, the nature of a world government. It doesn't need to face competitive pressures. Mm -hmm. As long as it's a strong enough government to quash internal rebellion. Then whatever policy it has, you know, lasts as long as it can maintain support for policy. Okay, but the people running the government evolution would have shaped their preferences, and wouldn't they? Yes. But want... as you can see in our world today, we've got humans who seem to express a lot of environmental preferences: hostility to growth, hostility to war and aggression. Even though you know you would have thought these were pretty well supported evolutionary strategies, mm -hmm. yeah, that's true. And you know, if you think of people in the center of government trying to maintain control, expansion is a big threat to that. Okay. If you have a world government's located in just one star system, then communication costs are very low, and travel costs are low and fast. And if any one small part defies you, you can just crush them. Yeah. But once you're spread across thousands of star systems, it just becomes much harder for a central government to maintain control. Yeah. And so if you once you have a society that just likes having a world government, likes that central coherence, um, you know, allowing expansion is, is a direct threat to that. 
Yeah, I imagine if, if offense is much easier than defense, if you solve physics, then you'll be very afraid that a breakaway province might come and kill you. And you could otherwise exactly. live a billion years. Why take the risk? Right. So anyway, but we just need, you know, a, a high probability here. We, 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 don't, we, need, we don't need it over 50%, right? Right. We're just putting together a prior here. Yeah. And then, you know, on the other end, we have the, like, what's the chance that they don't want to kill us? Uh, that they feel some affiliation and interest in what we are independent of them, that they don't want to kill us or just crush us and take us over or whatever, mm -hmm. right? That right. seems to me around 50-50 at least. And then there's what's the chance that they choose the strategy of, like, sitting at the edge of visibility to just try to be high status for us. Mm -hmm. I'd give that, like, one in ten. Now, of course, each one of these really has sort of a distribution over these odds because what we really want to do is multiply them and multiply their distributions. Yeah, yeah. And so that, this is where I come up with saying, look, this is at least one in a thousand, which is not zero. But <clears throat> think about an ordinary legal trial. Imagine you've got somebody on trial for attempted murder, right? What's the prior odds of that? Like one out of, one out of a thousand people is murdered, so maybe one out of a thousand people gets an attempted murder. Yeah. And out of all the people who might want to attempt to murder that people, maybe you could come up with a thousand people who might plausibly want to do it. So now we got a prior one in a million, right? Right. Well, we don't just end the trial and say, well, this is crazy and likely. There's no way we're going to allow this trial. <laughs> That's not how it works, right? Oh, right, of course. We say, okay, yes, the prior odds is one in a million, but like, show us what you got. And it's usually quite possible for court evidence to overcome a one in a million prior, right? Yeah, yeah. So just our ordinary legal process is typically of events that have a low prior, but not a crazy low prior. If the prior was, you know, 10 to the minus 20, well, we would say, go away. <laughs> There's no way you're going to give us enough evidence to overcome this prior, so just, you know, just forget it. But in one of a thousand, is plenty high enough of a prior to say, okay, show us what you got. So that's kind of the attitude you should have with respect to these UFO sightings, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a prior, it's not what you would have guessed. But that's true in every legal trial. Still, somebody makes an accusations. You gotta, you gotta look at the evidence and say, okay, how strong is this? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one in a thousand, that, that's enough that it's more likely than, say, mass insanity in the military, I would say. Right, or, exactly. <laughs> or multiple sensor failures that by coincidence happen at the right. same time. Right. A hundred thousand, in a hundred thousand separate events. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you could, if you went through all of them, you might be able to dismiss a lot of them. But but you could still be left with a thousand hard cases. Right, right, right. So that yeah, that does make it more plausible. I mean, what is the theory that it's? I mean, we send automated probes, you know, in the deep ocean, and it's just aliens sending out probes. They just they don't care if they're seen. They don't just don't want to be destroyed or caught. So again. These are advanced aliens millions of years past us, so all of their life is artificial, right? Mm -hmm. And in a probe the size of a penny, there's plenty of room for many alien intelligences smarter than us. Yeah. So if these things we're seeing are actually the physical size, there's room for entire civilizations of minds inside those things. There's no way they are just a mindless probe, unless for some reason, they wanted to send a mindless probe, i.e. such that if we caught it, we couldn't learn much about them or something. Yeah. Or it might be just they, they don't want to send a sentient being to go on a long trip because it's a lot more enjoyable to stay in their home civilization. You're, you'd be depriving them of a lot. So you... 
Yeah, I don't buy that. So, you know, I wrote this book called Age of M. Right, right. <laughs> all about digital minds and what they'd be like. And that uh, doesn't fit my prediction about the attitudes they would have once they can copy themselves. I think they'd just be pretty free with making copies and especially a pause copy, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to be, they'd be pretty free with having copies that will end after a time because they know there's lots of other copies that continue and they're fine with that. Okay. The book is The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life, When Robots Rule the Earth, in case you hadn't heard of it. Yes, it's a very good book. I mean, if they don't want to give control, though, it might be possible that if you send an M or a conscious being, then it's possible that it will rebel against what you want it to do. So they're just sending, they want to you know, keep track of what's happening, they're sending back data. Right. Again, the main thing is, there's no way their probes need to be visible. Yes. I mean, and UFOs are, I mean, pretty visible. <laughs> They're elusively visible, but they are, you know, look, big glowing objects in the sky at night, right? I mean, they could just be dark. Dark objects in the sky at night, which are as quiet as these things are, apparently, and disturb the fluids around them as little, then you, you wouldn't see it, right? Yeah. Although they could be optimizing and say, look, they're not going to believe it anyway, that they're UFOs, so why spend the extra three cents to make it invisible? I mean, these things seem to actually be, like, glowing. Yeah. But <laughs> just we, reflecting the moon. I mean, they're, they're generating, they're using up energy. But, and, like, and why, if you were here looking at stuff, I mean, the flight plots they were on, this don't seem terribly useful for surveying things. I mean, you know, you could just have a dark thing in orbit with a nice big lens and see stuff on the ground very sharply. Well, I mean, still, the optics might be that you, being much closer gives you better information, no matter how advanced you are. I guess you could build a really big invisible lens. Yeah, and but also, like, the main thing you want to know is just sort of seeing roughly what's where of an orbit. And the other thing you want to know is, like, sensors on the ground, like, listening for sounds and reading our, you know, electronic communications. These things that float in the sky don't do either of those well. Okay. You know, things that are, like, a few hundred feet up, what's the point of that? So what would your theory predict about how we could manipulate them if we could we find patterns of what they're doing and then move aircraft carrier around so so one one big question there is what do they understand about us and Mm -hmm. their strategy here like makes that opaque to us so they are in some sense minimizing our ability to manipulate them by being so opaque and telling us the minimum possible right right so it's possible for example they do not understand our language they now maybe they hear sounds we make and just don't know what they mean they read our, you know, TV signals, and they, they don't know what they mean, and they just don't understand our culture much at all. Mm-hmm. That's entirely possible if they've just got a very small set of local representatives who are not very smart and lazy and not very authorized to do very much, then, you know, that. So, for example, they may even have, like, internal propaganda and control of censorship such that they're afraid of polluting the minds of their visitors by listening to us. Yeah, okay. Right? So that's one of the ways we could manipulate them is by, you know, arguing to them, right? (laughs) Trying to persuade them of our views. Say, to persuade them to become grabby. And from home, that's a risk. You know, why let these local representatives take the risk of being persuaded by us? Because at home, they probably not only have this rule against it, they probably have a lot of, like, propaganda promoting this rule, right? Yes, in the British Empire, they were very afraid of officials going native. Yeah, exactly. That would corrupt the administrative policy. So a simple solution there is maybe they don't want to understand our language. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe they just want to, like, 
see if we cross a line and kill us, but before then, try to convince us to follow them. What about, uh, what if we were to attack them? I mean, they're flying around our, our yeah. aircraft carrier. Yeah. Should we? So the, I mean, the obvious thing is they, they don't mind that because they're just going to easily win. <laughs> you know, they've set it up so that they're going to easily win. I mean, so in fact, People have, done, you know, there are reports of UFO encounters where basically people tried to shoot at them and things like that, and they sort of easily swatted them away, mm -hmm. <laughs> turned off their systems or, you know, jumped out of the way at the last moment. They, they just, you know, could, could do that easily. Right. That would be a way of testing their capabilities if we shot high-powered lasers at them to see how they right. react. I mean, once our ability to hurt them got close to the actual ability to hurt them, maybe their strategy would start to change. But as long as they are just completely safe... They might as well show us that. So it's not a big risk to try to manipulate them through attacking them. No, uh, but again, if the future, if people will in fact come to see them as high status, then your reputation might be shit. <laughs> it's because you didn't respect them like you should. Or maybe that's how you respect them. Maybe, right, maybe they're maybe. flying around our military yeah, stuff. They, sure. they want to see what we can do or. Or not. Maybe, maybe, maybe that they, they just see that's a learning thing. So that's that's a common thing between humans, right? You know, so when a bunch of boys are fighting for dominance, sometimes they'll actually have a fist fight, and then one of them will win, and you know what? They become buddies afterwards, right? Yeah. <laughs> but and one of them is on top, right? And they, yeah. they learn to accept that. And if one boy goes up against a much stronger boy, the even the stronger boy wins, the weaker boy might be the one who gained relative status because they're like, whoa, you got you were willing to challenge him. That's impressive. We, Right, but the stronger boy needs to make it clear, but I still won. And, you know, like if you have an adult and some two-year-old tries to fight them, you know, the adult doesn't hit, hurt them much, right? Right. Just pick them up and hold them at a distance and show that, like, you can stop them from hurting you and not and not have any risk to yourself either. So I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't worry too much about it, right? I mean, come on. It's the flip side here, right? Look, if they know much about us, they're already offended by some things if they would be willing to be offended. Yeah. Right? It, it goes the other direction, right? There's certainly some things we do they hate. Yeah. If they know a lot about us. You know, they decide to be more mature about that, right? Because they're the upper hand. Uh, but, you know, just like we hate many things about our ancestors. Do you have any suggestions for what we should be doing now with the possibility that these UFOs are aliens? Well, I mean, the main question is, you know, if we want to avoid this rule of not becoming grabby, then we have to be very tricksy <laughs> about how we avoid that rule. So we would, we would need to create some, you know, very secret, very hidden places where we were developing the capability to evade their rule. And then we would need to like slip out in a very stealthy way that they couldn't see to go off to become grabby. Right. If, if we're willing to just follow the rule, then there's not much to do. We just continue on our path and eventually, you know, they will uh, do what they will talk when they're ready to talk, uh, when they approve enough of what we've done and become. Right. Right. If we want to defy them, then we know this is going to be really hard. They've got sensors out there that are pretty powerful and advanced that we don't know where they are and what they can see. And uh, of course, they aren't expecting us to slip, try to slip off and become grabby early because they don't think we are up to it. So our best chance to slip off and become grabby is probably to do it way earlier than they thought we could, right? Yeah. So we'd have to develop some secret high-tech place on Earth and allow that thing to become just much more advanced than other stuff. So basically you want one of the Bond villain islands. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's our strategy. 
And you can see that means, oh, that's a pretty damn hopeless strategy. I mean, it's a pretty damn hard strategy, right? Yeah. Well, if they don't monitor too closely, we would have other goals, and it would secretly, we'd be building the components for self-replicating probes, but we would be, you know, yeah. doing it for other things that seem safe to them, but okay, secretly. So, I mean, first of all, we need a way to fill, like, a spaceship with M's, basically. So first of all, you know, digital minds will have to sit on, on a spaceship, and it'll need to have, like, nanotechnology to be able to make whatever it wants, right? Right. And then we have to launch that thing away from the Earth in a hidden way. Because mm -hmm. they're almost surely, like, watching for things launching from Earth, right? Yeah. So somehow we have to launch a thing that's disguised, and somehow it slips out, or, you know, that seems really hard, but, that you know, you have to do that, and... You have to find a way to fill this thing with technology that they don't believe we have. Yeah. So, so you have to find some secret place where it gets developed and matured enough that you can put it on this probe. And now you have to send this thing out, and you have to decide how fast is it going to go, right? The faster you send it, the, easy, the easier it will be to see, and the more it's likely it's going to be shot down. So you just, like, throw it out and have it drift, right? But how slowly is it going to drift, <laughs> I mean, how many years are you willing to, to wait until it arrives somewhere else, right? And then maybe, what if they've got little probes waiting at the million nearest stars? <laughs> yeah. Right? Waiting for our little thing to slip out and to show itself up there, right? And they could afford that. That's not too expensive. So you can see what you're up against here, right? Yeah. Probably persuasion would work better that we should persuade them well, to let us become crabby. If, if they would listen. Yeah. But, of course, the moment we try to persuade them is the moment they realize that we would be inclined to do that. And, therefore, you know, they are extra careful watching us. Yeah, we might have reasons they haven't thought of. And... Sure, but, um, I mean, the gravity aliens model just says, like, somebody does it for some reason. It doesn't really matter what the reason is or whether it corresponds with moral truth. As long as there's a rate at which it happens, then eventually it happens and the universe gets filled up with them. And our earliness says that's what happens. Mm -hmm. So the gravity aliens model says, I think with a modest degree of confidence, that these UFO aliens plan will fail. And they should be smart enough to know that. So they are already in some sort of awkward mental situation where they know that this rule they've enforced for millions of years and they're going to enforce on us can't last. But they might give themselves an extra, you know, another hundred billion years or so. Another billion, roughly. They could plausibly believe they have another billion years, and maybe that's worth it. But they are, yeah. their precious civilization, the way they want it, will last another billion years, and then the hordes from the alien hordes from far away will wash across them and have the speed of light, and end their civilization, mm -hmm. at least end their autonomy. Right? It could be that these. Foreigners will allow them to have a little sphere where they continue, but, you know, that depends on what, how generous they are. And maybe that's what they're hoping for. Maybe they think any reasonable aliens would at least allow that. So I guess they are, although if you could defend yourself until the expansion of the universe, like, casually, you know, causally cuts you off from everyone else, from all the other gravity aliens. Yeah, if, you, uh, you got another 150 billion years ago. That, that's, that's just way too long, right? If, if they're coming in a billion and you need to wait until 150 billion, then, yeah, that's just not going to work. Well, uh, thank you very much. This has been a, a very interesting conversation. It's been fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yep, and I'll, I'll look for the, the quote from the, the writer of Babylon 5 to send you. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Jim. Well, thanks, Robin. All right, have Take a, care. Bye. Bye-bye.